All right, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Lois, and I'm part of the leadership team here. And actually, I realised in preparing for today that uh, I've been part of this church for 10 years. Hooray! So to celebrate this important anniversary, <laughs> I'm going to preach to you from the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> but first, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions. Here's the first one. Who is the person who knows you best in the world? Just take a moment to think. You don't have to answer it out loud. <laughs> Did you just say Jesus? It's true. <laughs> who, is the, who is the person... The human person, <laughs> not divine, <laughs> who knows you best in the world. All right, hold that in your head. Uh, second question, who do you know best in the world? Who do you know best in the world? Now, there's no right answer to this, but put your hands up if you answered the same person to both questions. Hey, it's a smattering, as I predicted. Because it's not always the case that the person who knows us best is the person that we know best. My husband, uh, Chris, and I... This is Chris, by the way. Stand up, Chris. <laughs> Chris Fulton, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my husband, Chris, and I have an ongoing friendly debate about whether or not it's important to ask each other questions. <laughs> so on the, I, I've demonstrated this. On, on the one side of the debate... This is one side of it, me. What are your hopes and dreams for the future, Chris? That's, that's sort of me. And I'm sort of like MI6 level interrogation, like constant information gathering, probably verging on making people feel a little bit violated. And then there's Chris on the other end. In the middle is normal human interaction. And then on the other end is, is Chris, who is kind of a silent observer. He just sort of absorbs info. And in the first few years of our um, courtship, I think it's fair to say that my mother, who is, by the way, the one true interrogator, um, <laughs> knew more about me than Chris did. But that's changed over time, hasn't it, as opportunities for observation have <laughs> multiplied. And uh, since we've been married, I've had to concede that Chris's observational approach is actually disconcertingly better because you can observe more about a person than they're prepared to tell you always. So anyway, I'll come back to that later on. I'm going to be speaking today about a covenant. And as part of that, I'll take a fair bit of time introducing the big picture of covenant. And then we'll look together at the passage in Jeremiah that Lynn read for us. And that's a passage which describes the new covenant. And finally, we'll consider what this means for us in the room today. So the big picture then. Grace spoke to us last week and kicked off our current teaching series on God's kingdom in the Old Testament. That's Grace. She's not here today, so I've put a photo of her on the screen uh, in the crashing waves. She spoke about creation, and her three main points were that God made everything, God cares about everything, and finally, that God reigns as king over everything. And this idea of God's kingdom, which is God's rule as king over all, has some complexity to it. On the one hand, God is 
king, and he will always be king. But on the other hand, we know from the story of the fall and from our own human experience that his creatures have rebelled against him and don't always recognize his rule. So God's reign is both total and still advancing. It's a saving reign. So God advances his kingdom by pursuing and saving his people and the world. And that's why we often say, and we said earlier, let your, kil- your kingdom come, build your kingdom here. God is already king, but we're calling for his saving reign to advance. So why have I started by saying all of that? Well, the way that God chooses to advance his kingdom and carry out his saving reign on earth is through covenant. Kingdom through covenant. God's chosen this mysterious approach to save the world. So what is it? What is covenant? A covenant is a formal agreement between two parties which brings about a relationship of commitment and is characterized by love. It's a formal agreement between two parties which brings about a relationship of commitment and is characterized by love. The word isn't used much today outside of a church context, but one example would be the covenant of marriage. I'm not clicking on for some reason, Adam. Do you mind clicking on for me? It's just a picture of some marriage. It's fine. Great. So this is what the covenant looks like. The commitment, two people commit to a lifelong exclusive relationship, two become one, as the Spice Girls famously famously said, um, initiated by God. The terms of the covenant are solemn vows and promises, you know, till death do us part, we will be faithful to each other. And they do that in the presence of God and witnesses. The sign of this covenant is the exchange of rings. It's a recognizable feature to everyone else and to the couple um, of of unending love. And lastly, the blessings. We know from the marriage ceremony that the blessings are the joy and tenderness of sexual union, and for many, but not all, the gift of children. So covenants are about deep, close, committed relationships. And in the Bible, there are lots of different kinds. There's marriage, but there's also friendship and brotherhood. But today I'm going to focus just on covenant between God and people. And that's one of the amazing realities of history, that God makes covenant with people. God, who's the king over everything, has over time chosen to make deep, solemn commitments to human beings. And I have to stop and and ask the question, why? Why? Why does God choose to bind himself to relationship? Why should human beings who are small and insignificant in the universe be granted that kind of unthinkable, unfathomable blessing? Now, here's a slightly trivial (laughs) illustration of this. You should uh, should all recognize these people. This is Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, who are due to be married very soon. Many happy returns, if you're listening. (laughs) 
We, we love Megan in the UK, don't we? And why wouldn't we? She's intelligent, she's involved in lots of charity work, she's beautiful and smiley, she brings about a bit of class to the royal family. So well done, Harry. Don't let us down. <laughs> so imagine with me that instead of Mer- uh, Megan, Harry instead decides to marry Sandra. I know what you're thinking. Is that a photograph? (laughs) No, I I drew that myself in Microsoft Paint. It's an artist's impression of of Sandra. Unlike Megan, uh, Sandra isn't all that nice. In fact, she's been known to actually take candy from a baby. (laughs) Right out of its chubby little hands. She's not actually that interested in being a good wife to Harry. She's all in it for the family fortune and for the fancy food. So when all said and done, Sandra will have got quite a good deal out of this marriage to a prince. Uh, In case you're wondering, we're Sandra in this scenario. (laughs) You might have just been trying to figure out what was going on. (laughs) And a covenant relationship with the creator of the universe seems like an even better deal, doesn't it? So what can possibly be in it for God? Firstly, we know that God himself is relationship. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is this loving, mysterious trinity, three and one. Secondly, God is relational. And we heard last week that he created a universe to care for human beings in his image, tying our very identity to his identity. And thirdly, God loves us deeply. So he's relationship, he's relational, and he loves us deeply. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit, God says this amazing question really where are you he knew where they were uh, geographically but they were no longer there close to his heart there was a separation the sense of loss can really be felt in that question I think where are you God's desire for closeness to his creation a kind of heart closeness runs deep So asking why, why does God choose covenant, can help us to get closer to who God is and why he's done throughout time the things he has in order to save us. So in the Bible, covenants between God and humans have certain characteristics, some of which we've seen in the marriage ceremony. And I'll use one example now, and it will be useful, you'll see, for when we come to talk about our passage in Jeremiah, and that's the covenant at uh, Sinai. One of the most significant events in the Old Testament is described in the book of Exodus, and that is the saving work of God for the Israelites who were held in slavery in Egypt. You'll remember the story of the parting of the Red Sea? That's the event we're talking about. Through Moses, God led his people out of slavery in a powerful and miraculous way. In Exodus 19, we can read that the Israelites who have come out of danger come to the desert of Sinai, and God makes a covenant with them. And this is what happens. 
the Israelites and God commit to a lifelong relationship. They agree to obey God's laws, and God agrees to be their God. He commits too. The Israelites agree that they will not worship false idols, and they will worship only the Lord. They also accept there will be consequences if they break the covenant. Thirdly, there's a sacrifice. The covenant is sealed with this blood sacrifice, and Moses sprinkles the altar and the people with the blood of sacrificed bulls. And he says this, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Fourthly, the sign. This time, the sign is the gift of the Sabbath, which is a holy day of rest in which all Israelites must participate. It becomes a feature by which they recognize themselves and other nations recognize them. It sets them apart as the community of God. And lastly, the blessings of the covenant are amazing. God says, I will, I will always protect you. I will provide for you. I will heal you from sickness and I will lengthen your life. He says, I will give you a full life. So here we see a snapshot of God's saving work, saving reign at work. He says, I am king. I know what's best for you. Obey these laws, resist evil, honor and worship me. Idol worship denies my kingship and brings about only a curse for you. But the blessings that you will receive from the covenant are abundant. You'll have me. I will be your God. And in the Israelites' very recent memory will be the miraculous way that this God has saved them from a very real enemy in Egypt. So they're like, sign me up. The bigger picture is God saving his people from a dark spiritual enemy back to where they were created to be, next to his own heart. So this is a good deal for the Israelites. Uh, Chris and I have a long-standing agreement, a covenant, if you will, (laughs) that I cook and he washes up. It's supposed to be, the idea is that it's a fair split, although we've just got a dishwasher. So I've got to try and think of ways to make Chris's life a bit more difficult. Um, In the home of God's marriage to the Israelites, it's as if God is saying, I'll cook and I'll wash up. Oh, and I'll also do the supermarket shops, the laundry, the DIY, clean the toilets, put the bins out, resolve any issues with the neighbors, look after you when you're sick. I'll be a better partner than you could have hoped for. In return, you need to commit to this relationship and behave yourself. Covenant with God is a good deal. Now, from the time of the covenant at Sinai and to the time of the book of Jeremiah, a lot happens, and I'm not going to cover it all here. But over the years after this covenant, the reality is that God's people struggled to keep their side of the covenant, though there were also times of great intimacy and blessing. God sent prophets to remind the people of their covenant commitments. A high point for the Israelites was the rule of King David, 
a man close to God's heart who recognized the true kingship of God and worshipped only him. But after that time, there were more and more instances of the people and kings falling away from God, doing the very things they promised so solemnly not to do. At the time of Jeremiah, not only have they lost the blessings of the covenant, along comes judgment. The kingdom is already divided at that time, hence why they're referred to as Israel and Judah in our passage. But Israel also becomes prey to their enemies and waves of Israelites are taken into captivity. Kings no longer represent God as the true king. The covenant relationship is broken. And it's at this time that Jeremiah, the prophet, is sent. That's a tough calling. So just before we turn to the passage itself, what can we learn from elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah? Firstly, the covenant relationship is an unfaithful marriage. Jeremiah actually uses the image of a marriage to depict this relationship between God and the Israelites. And God says to Jeremiah in chapter 5, the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly unfaithful to me. And this refers to idolatry. They promised they wouldn't worship false idols. And they did. And in chapter 2, God says to Jeremiah, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. In other words, other nations with false gods are more faithful to their gods than you are, and you have the true God of glory. And the image of an unfaithful marriage is the closest image to this that we can understand, and that's why he uses it. It's painful the betrayal and the insult to the other party who has committed their whole lives to the relationship. That's why God uses the word horror. Yet this is greater than a human marriage. It's a commitment with the Lord Almighty. I think we, we are all often assured of, uh, of God's faithfulness to us, aren't we? And... Uh, Passages like these make me stop and wonder how faithful are we to him because he does notice. And I want to share a brief encouragement on this front. You might have been expecting a challenge. Um, Idolatry often brings a challenge, doesn't it? Recently, as a leadership team, we invited Dave Oliver, who's a prophetic leader from elsewhere in the Salt and Light family, to come and help us to review our activities and our prophetic words together as a church. I think we were all expecting there to be lots of things come up that we have to change or consider doing differently, and there was some of that. But we were taken aback by a strong encouragement that Dave brought to us. He said, he has never before come across a church who has so faithfully stewarded the word of God to them over the years. Never before come across a church who has so faithfully stewarded the word of God to them over the years. And that chimes with another encouragement that came to us from a visiting speaker last year. He said, The Holy Spirit 
has recognized how you have continued to prioritize his presence. I wanted to share that because many of you won't have heard those things. And I think we often hear the word idolatry and think, oh yes, I I do watch a bit too much TV. And that's true. (laughs) I do anyway. And I'm not trivializing those things because they can have power in our lives. But today we're part of a bigger picture. We're a body. And God's word to us recently has been, thank you for showing faithfulness to me. So let's just take that on board and continue to be faithful people because temptations and challenges do come. So secondly, their sin is far more serious than they know. False prophets are telling Israel what they want to hear. In chapter 6, God says, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. What a horrible, amazing image. They patch up this wound as if it's not serious. Actually, in chapter 30, God says of his people, your wound is incurable. So there are prophets in Jeremiah's time, maddeningly, who are saying, it's going to be all right, you're fine, the temple will always stand. And Jeremiah is one of the least popular prophets, by the way, because he's saying, no, the temple will not be fine, and that's your fault. You need to change. I'm really grateful that I do have the kind of friends and family that don't just tell me what I want to hear to make me feel better. But this passage really drives home to me the honor of a calling that is faithful to scripture and God's covenant at the expense of fuzzy feelings. We don't always do each other a favor if we bring reassurance when we really know that change is needed. So respect for Jeremiah. Thirdly, there is religious hypocrisy. And in chapter 12, Jeremiah says to God, you are always on their lips, but far from their hearts always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Any deep, heartfelt covenant bond is long gone. Lastly, God feels the separation and pain of his people deeply. In chapter 9, he says this, Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I had never read that verse before, and I was quite taken aback by the emotion of it. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. It's the same anguish of where are you in the Garden of Eden. So if you've ever read Jeremiah, you'll know there's a lot of darkness and sadness and judgment. And you might be forgiven for thinking that it's not a page turner. But you'll also know that there's this strand of hope that runs throughout. Though healing is declared on the one hand to be impossible, God nevertheless says that he will heal In chapter 31, he says, Is not Ephraim, in other words, Israel, my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him. So the references to judgment provide a contrast, a really stark contrast, to the act of salvation and grace that God promises to bring in the future. He's still that saving God. So that's the big picture. Let's look now at the promise of a new covenant 
in Jeremiah 31. Do turn with me in your Bibles if you haven't already. As Lynn said, it's chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. So what does this passage say? Firstly, in verse 31, it says, there will be a new covenant. And verse 32, it says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. That's the covenant at Sinai that we heard about earlier. The new covenant will be different because they broke the old one. And you can just see the marriage motif again in verse 32. They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So the new covenant will therefore be different because it will be unbreakable. Secondly, could you click on? There we go. The law will be internalized. In verse 33, it says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. In other words, there's a shift to the inner nature. This covenant won't be written on a stone tablet or in a covenant book. People will recognize God's kingship internally as well as externally. Thirdly, it says this, there will once again be mutual ownership. So in verse 33, it says, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will be theirs and they will be mine. Mutual ownership. Where there hasn't for a long time been a close relationship of love and togetherness, that will be restored. Fourthly, All people will be able to know God. In verse 34, it says, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So this isn't about an external community identity. This is each individual person in the community knowing God for themselves. The Hebrew word for know is yada. And this word appears throughout the Bible because it's the word for know. I mean, it's a common verb. But this context, it makes it interesting. The context of a covenant relationship that's compared to marriage is worth comparing it to a similar usage in Genesis where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, that is Yada, to know his wife. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. So this is a deep and intimate knowing between two persons who are committed wholly to one another in relationship that touches mind, emotion and will. So the use of the word know here I don't think is incidental. God is saying in the new covenant all people will be able to have a deep and intimate knowledge of him. And lastly, it says that sin will be dealt with. In verse 34, it says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So that is the new covenant. It's an unbreakable, heartfelt, intimate bond 
between God and humans, which is mutually enjoyed and which sin will not be able to destroy. It is an unbreakable, heartfelt, intimate bond between God and humans, which is mutually enjoyed and which sin will not be able to destroy. And that was the promise to the Israelites who were deeply idolatrous and on the brink of devastation. That is God's saving grace. So this new covenant was brought about by Jesus. In Luke 22, verse 19, at the Last Supper, Jesus says this, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Notice the similarity in that phrase to the phrase that Moses uses when he sprinkles blood at Sinai. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So he's saying, I am that sacrifice. My blood brings about a new covenant between God and all people. God will look upon my pure obedience and willing sacrifice and forget the sins of all who trust in me. So sin is what destroyed the relationship in the Garden of Eden. And sin is what broke the covenant at Sinai. And this time, the sacrifice of Jesus means that sin itself is defeated and humans always have a way back to God. We are God's new covenant people. And Jesus is our new covenant mediator. It's no accident that the marriage motif continues. We as the church are described as the bride of Christ. But there's something else I want to mention. Jeremiah wasn't the only Old Testament prophet to speak about this coming promise. Ezekiel says this in chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. It's quite clear from the language that Ezekiel uses that he's been given the same vision that Jeremiah has. God will deal with sin and idolatry. God will focus on the heart and on our inner nature. And there will be mutual ownership once more. You will be my people and I will be your God. But what Ezekiel refers to here is something that isn't explicit in the Jeremiah passage, and that is the provision of the Spirit of God, and I will put my Spirit in you. When it becomes clear again and again and again that human beings are incapable of obeying laws and avoiding the temptation of idolatry and sin, God says he will literally put himself in us, the glory and power and presence of God in us. That's a never-before-seen event 
in human history. That's how much God wants to save his people to himself. So the Holy Spirit is what Jesus promises his disciples as part of the new covenant. And it happens at Pentecost in Acts 2, just after Jesus' ascension. The disciples are powerfully filled by the Holy Spirit. And we often talk about this story in in lots of different ways. We learn about speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit and the birth of the church. And those are all incredibly important things. But another dimension is the covenant dimension, that the Holy Spirit equips us to obey God as king in a way that the participants in the old covenant weren't able to. And that is to live a holy life in deep, close, heartfelt, knowing intimacy with God, and also to partner with him in his saving reign, telling others that they too can know God for themselves. So, to finish, what does this mean for us? Firstly, because of Jesus, we can enjoy the mutual ownership of covenant for eternity. As the church, we're his people and he is our God. We are his bride and he is our faithful husband. His deep love for us never fails. That's is a good deal. And secondly, because of Jesus, our sin is dealt with. We need only repent and turn away from our sin to know that we are forgiven and that God will keep no record of it. No matter how sinful we are, our sin cannot break this covenant. We cannot ruin our marriage to God. That is a good deal. Thirdly, because of the Holy Spirit within us, we can overcome evil. We still need to obey God. He's the king, and he knows what's best for us. But with him in us, we can do it. And that is a good deal. And finally, we can know God. Remember the questions I asked at the start about who knows you best and who you know best. The reality is that God knows us far better than we can ever know him. But that doesn't mean we should give up. He wants us to know him more and more deeply. There is always more to know. Our uh, church small group is currently reading a book about God called None Like Him which we're all really enjoying, having kind of our mind blown by it, aren't we? And um, that's one way you can get to know God better, by kind of asking questions about him. But you could also take the Chris Fulton approach and absorb in silence. The Holy Spirit is within us all the time, and we can draw close to him and sit in his presence and wait for him to reveal more and more of who he is and his heart. That is an amazing deal. That's what I want to give us the opportunity to do now. We have a bit of time as we move into a time of response. Um, Can the band come up? Can I ask everyone who is able uh, to stand with me?
I'm going to uh, invite the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh as a church. And I believe he wants to work within each of us to help us to know him better. We don't need to do anything. We just need to stand and wait. And if you're new to us and this is new for you, just close your eyes. And if you'd like to, you could say a silent prayer asking God to reveal himself to you. If there's anyone here who likes the sound of being in a covenant relationship with God and you're not sure if you have done it before, then please do come and chat with me afterwards. So let me just pray. We thank you that you are our God and that we are your people. We thank you for the love that you have demonstrated over centuries of history. We are grateful that we can stand before you now, free from sin, confident that there's nothing we can do to lose you, confident that your saving reign is always advancing. We pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. And now, Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to carry out your new covenant promise that all people can know you deeply. We want to know you more. Please would you come now and would you reveal yourself to every single one of us. You said from the least to the greatest. Some people here might feel like they're the least. Would you reveal yourself to every single one of us? Come, Holy Spirit. When I was uh, praying for this morning, I asked God if there was anything he wanted to say to us, his people today, and he gave me this poem, which I will read, and then hand back to Al and John to help us to follow where the Spirit might lead us together. My love for you is like a hurricane, a swirling storm. It is a crashing meandering river it has the heat and power of a volcanic chamber it can split rock and mountain it raises the dead back to life my love for you sees a skipped heartbeat the pang of a hidden grief it feels the beat of a bee's wing and knows the loneliest cry of a heart. 
My love for you burns as brightly now as it did when Adam first walked with me in the garden, when he first got down on his knees before me. It has felt your loss since the beginning of time, and it has patiently and persistently fought for you. It has come to earth and endured a human life, suffering pain and shame in death. It has risen in glory and made a home within you, making us closer than we have ever been. My love for you is strong because you are my people and I am your God. <laughs>